Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and this week on the show, we're taking a look at true threats. In America, true threats represent an unprotected category of speech, that is, they fall outside the protections of the First Amendment. But, as our guest will explain, it's not so easy to determine what a true threat actually is. This is a very active area of the law, with many courts disagreeing about its scope. Our guest today is David L. Hudson Jr. He is the author of a fascinating American Bar Association journal article that was published earlier this summer in August, and it's on, of course, the topic of true threats. The article is titled, When Do Rants Exceed First Amendment Boundaries and Become True Threats? David is really one of America's foremost scholars on the First Amendment. His CV includes work at Nashville School of Law, the Museum Institute's First Amendment Center, Vanderbilt School of Law, and of course here at FIRE where he is a legal fellow and we just began releasing a series of short explainer videos called Fire Starters about seminal First Amendment free speech cases that David narrates. And I encourage you all to go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thefireorg, to check out those explainer videos. Um, working with David has really, both on this podcast and on the explainer videos, has been been really incredible. I've been awestruck by the breadth of his knowledge on First Amendment law. One of his many talents is his ability to remember and quote whole passages from Supreme Court decisions, almost always word for word. Uh, He can also recall the names of plaintiffs, not only from Supreme Court cases, but also lower court cases in some cases. And he can give you their biographical information. And uh, actually, as you'll hear in this podcast today, uh, if he's talking about a book, he can sometimes ballpark the page number a specific piece of information can be found on. And it's quite incredible. He's a human encyclopedia of First Amendment knowledge. And if he doesn't have a photographic memory, I'm sure he has something pretty darn close. This is actually David first appearance on, so to speak, but hopefully not his last. This conversation was recorded on August 28th while David was in Fire's Philly office and I was in our DC office. So now let's uh, dive into the confounding world of true threats and the First Amendment. David, welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you wrote this very interesting article in the ABA Journal about true threats. And now true threats are traditionally understood to be one of the exceptions to the First Amendment's free speech protection, but it's often also one of the most misunderstood. People think that true threats do something that they don't always do. So I wanted to ask you, what is a true threat under the law? And what is often understood just by the community at large, the non-First Amendment lawyers community, to be a true threat? Great question. And it's a difficult question to answer, actually, because the true threat doctrine is one of the messiest that we have in First Amendment law. But probably the best answer I could give is that a true threat is a statement in which a reasonable recipient 
would regard as a serious expression of an intent to commit harm. So if I say I'm going to kill you, and I say that in straight, direct language, and there's no indication that I'm joking or there's no other context that, that somehow mitigates that, that, that would be considered a true threat. Uh, the problem is oftentimes, you know, it's very difficult to discern whether somebody's actually engaging in a true threat or they're merely venting or there's some sort of joking going on. Uh, but it's a very difficult area because the court, the Supreme Court, has never exactly explained whether it's an, purely an objective intent standard or there's a subjective intent standard. It's just a very difficult arena in which to distinguish exactly where protected speech crosses the line into an unprotected true threat. But the, the shorthand way that I like to refer to it as a serious expression of an intent to commit harm. So when you talk about the objective intent standard and the subjective intent standard, what exactly do you mean? Can you flesh those out a bit for our listeners? When I think of the objective standard, I traditionally view that as would a reasonable third party, um, and perhaps the recipient, would a reasonable recipient or a reasonable third party objectively view the statement as a true threat? The subjective intent standard is a little bit different. That means that the speaker herself or himself specifically intended that it was a true threat. And that can be quite different, right? In other words, I as the speaker could utter something that you, the recipient, reasonably believe is a true threat, but I myself really didn't intend it as a true threat. Yeah, it could and have been so, a drunken rant. For exactly, example. exactly. And that was the issue in Perez versus Florida that so concerned Justice Sonia Sotomayor was a guy in Florida goes into a convenience store and says something about, you know, blowing the store up. Yeah, with a Molly cocktail, which right. is, presumably it, means a Molotov cocktail. And the guy's probably upset about something. I don't know what he was upset about. But the guy gets a 15-year prison sentence for what many believe is simply a drunken rant. You know, he didn't really specifically intend, he certainly didn't intend to go blow up the store. Um, he just had a very poor choice of words and he, he drank too much. And now he's looking at actual jail time. And that's what I actually agree with Justice Sotomayor that, you know, we really need to clean up this doctrine. It's very messy. And uh, it's, it's one that uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty as to what exactly crosses the line and really becomes a true threat. And then it's even worse in the K-12 through environment where there have been some students, for example, that have written some violent-themed work, um, and then it's, it's deemed to be truly threatening, and there, there really was no intent to commit a true threat. On the other hand, you know, I guess, I guess to, to offer the counter, shut me up if I'm talking too much, but, you know, on the counter of that is, as I remember reading uh, Dave Cullen's excellent book on Columbine, and on a passage in the around page 70 or 80, there's a, there's a passage in there where talking about English teacher Judith Kelly, and she's reading a student essay that is as violent and gruesome as she's ever read. And so she calls the student in for a conference, and the student said, well, it was a creative writing assignment. You know, I, I, and it was about a, the essay was about a guy in a duffel bag with a bunch of guns who goes in and shoots a bunch of people. And so the student says, well, it's really, not, you know, it's just creative writing. Don't, don't worry about it. Well, she's not satisfied, and she later has a, a, a student parent, con or a parent conference, and she calls in the parents, and 
the parents say, you know, it's just creative writing. You know, he plays a lot of video games. Well, it turns out that was uh, the the author of that essay was Dylan Kleibold, uh-huh. who, along with Eric Eric Harris, is one of the Columbine shooters. So, you know, there are times where writing reflects, you know, an entry into somebody's disturbed soul. On the other hand, you know, as Stephen King has said, look, if somebody judged me by our writing, I not only would have been expelled, I may have been thrown in jail. So, you know, there, there has to be a, a strong sense of, um, you know, common sense, right, in determining whether whether something's a true threat. But we really need to get this, get this straight as to, to how we judge whether something's a true threat or not. Um, and we need to ensure that, you know, people aren't being imprisoned for, I think, just mere venting. Um, well, well, in the case of the, Go- the Columbine shooter, were his words directed at anyone, or was it just gruesome writing? It's just gruesome writing, yeah. And I, I don't mean to say, but there have been, there have been, the reason I, I brought that up is there have been K-12 through cases where, for example, kids who wrote something that's violent-themed, it's been deemed to be a true threat even though they didn't even show it to anyone. Yeah. And so that to me, that's that's disturbing. And that's where you see – you don't want a situation where anytime somebody writes a violent-themed essay that you know automatically is a true threat and there's no First Amendment protection because you, you actually hit the nail on the head in, in the opening segment when you said true threats are one of those special unprotected categories of speech. And I think the challenge for us as a, as a society and a community is to – Recognize that there is a there 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 are a narrow range or there is a narrow range of statements that that really are true threats, but we don't want to get to a situation where people are chilled from from writing about themes of violence. I mean, the the Bible has violence in it, fairy tales have violence in it. What was Justice Scalia's great line from um, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association? Right? Grimm's fairy tales are quite grim. Right. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that has violent themes. It's not really a true threat. So I'm looking at some of the examples that you provide in your ABA journal essay. And you know, a federal district court in Nebraska ruled that the defendant's statement to an employee at a social sec- security office could be considered a true threat. And this was the statement, if you fuck with my family, I'm going to fuck with you. There was also a case at the Connecticut uh, Supreme Court that ruled that a man's statement to his brother, if you go into the attic, I will hurt you, could be considered a true threat and denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. In both of those statements, it sounds as though the threat is conditional. And so what does the court have to say about conditional threats? Yeah, traditionally under, you know, the, the court created the true threat doctrine in 1969 in a case called Watts versus United States, which involved uh, the prosecution of a 19-year-old man named Robert Watts, who was actually at an anti-war rally, and he said something to the effect, "If um, you know, if they make me go kill my black brothers, the first person I'm going to put in my scope is LBJ," which referred to President Lyndon Baines Johnson, and he was prosecuted for violating a, a federal true threat statute, and the court said no. Um, we have to consider the fact that, one, this is conditional. And so traditionally, if something is conditional, it's not a true threat, right? Because there's, you know, there's a difference between I am going to kill you and if you give me a bad grade in class, I'm going to kill you. So usually if something's conditional, it's, it's not a true threat. But um, you have to consider all the contextual factors. And so sometimes in, in total context, a statement is deemed to be a true threat. But what I was trying to do in the article 
would show, one, that the true threat doctrine is pretty active, and two, to try to convey a sense of how unsettled this doctrine is, that there are a lot of gray areas. Well, with the conditional statements, it makes me almost think of blackmail, and I don't know what the law necessarily says about blackmail, but uh, if you can't go about your daily life because there's a threat that there might be physical violence brought upon you, uh, that strikes me as as just kind of another wrinkle. Yeah, and certainly blackmail and extortion that that's also not protected speech. Neither is perjury. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, types of speech that are not protected speech. But the ones that we traditionally care about in the First Amendment community are those in which I think there's a degree of abuse, and you could actually chill a lot of protected speech. And I think true threats is one of those areas, right? It's and it's it's sort of difficult. You know, I often try to put true threats in context. You know, in the First Amendment family, there are there are several cousins, right? True threats, fighting words, and incitement to imminent lawless action. And I think part of the problem for many is that they kind of conflate those different categories. Uh, so there's a difference between true threats as opposed to fighting words, as opposed to incitement to imminent lawless action. Well, I was going to ask you about incitement to imminent lawless action. That's the Brandenburg standard. And if I understand that standard correctly, uh, you know, it needs to be a threat and it needs to be imminent. Uh, and it doesn't sound as though the Supreme Court has said, has told us how imminence should be considered in the true threat doctrine, correct? Yeah, the, the closest they came was a 1973 de- decision, uh, Hess versus Indiana, where a gentleman... I think he was a student in Indiana. I know that it took place some sort of anti-draft protest in Indiana, and he's he said, "We'll take the f and street later," uh, and the and the police, uh, you know, arrested him. And what the Supreme Court essentially said was, you know, we'll take the f and street later. At best, amounted to you know some sort of incitement in an indefinite time in the future, and that was not enough to to satisfy the imminency requirement. So. Traditionally, in interpreting Brandenburg, it has to be a statement that encourages people to engage in immediate unlawful violence. So an example, the case that I use in my law classes is People versus Tolia. I believe the name of the case is a case out of New York where there was a concert in a public park, and apparently the decibel levels were quite high, and a lot of residents called the police. Police come. And somebody on the, on stage says, here come the police, resist the police, um, throw bottles at them. And so a bunch of people started throwing bottles at the police. Well, obviously that's dangerous, and the, the speaker was causing people to engage in immediate unlawful action, and so he got charged with inciting a riot. And under the specific facts of that case, that's probably a correct decision, right, because he's actively encouraging uh, unlawful immediate conduct towards the police, right? So in that case, that that would satisfy the Brandenburg standard. But, you know, there's there's some people that say the Brandenburg standard ought to be modified in, in the uh, so-called, you know, war on terrorism, where let's say somebody gets online and urges mass unlawful action, but it's but there's there's no like uh, imminency to it, you know, and at some later point in time, somebody commits an unlawful act. Well, that technically doesn't comply with Brandenburg, right? Because there's no temporal proximity 
between the statement and the resulting violence. Yeah, so in that Perez v. Florida case that you mentioned earlier where Sotomayor sort of expressed her concerns about the true threat doctrine, I want to read through some of the facts of that case and, and go through a hypothetical here with you. Uh, you said, last year the Supreme Court denied review in Perez v. Florida, a case in which a man who had spent the day at the beach with friends received a sentence of 15 years and one day for saying he was going to come back and bomb a grocery store. Robert Perez Jr. reportedly said he had a Molly cocktail in his backpack, and a store employee thought he had said Molotov cocktail. Rep Perez told another store employee that he had only one Molotov cocktail and could blow the whole place up. He later returned to the store, apparently drunk, and stated, I'm going to blow up the whole fucking world. Perez contended that he was joking and inebriated, but the state charged him with making terroristic threats. So you write here that he said he was going to return to the store and uh, blow it up. So that would that would bring into question the the Brandenburg standard and the question of immediacy. So what what is a law enforcement officer to do if someone says they're going to come back in an hour and with a Molotov cocktail and blow the place up? And putting aside the question of whether it's actually a true threat because he intended it to be or he was just in a drunken stupor and angry at an employee, how should law enforcement officers think about that? Because I'm thinking I'm a store employee. I've got a disgruntled uh, customer here who won't leave, who's making you know, threats against my employees. I don't know if they're true or not, uh, but he says he's going to come back and blow the place up. It's like one of those situations where a kid says he's going to shoot up a school one day if you keep doing this or that. Uh, that brings in the conditional nature of it. But I, I mean, how, how should we react? Well, I think that's why we have to have different categories with true threat and imminency, right? So in the true threat doctrine, there is not the same level of imminency requirement as there is in the Brandenburg standard. So you can utter a true threat, and it doesn't have to be immediately imminent, as in Brandenburg. So you know he was prosecuted for violating something and making a terroristic threat. That's a little bit different than citing a riot under Brandenburg. And I think that probably is a good distinction to have, because sometimes people say they're going to do something, and then two hours later they do it. Um, what I think is so disturbing about the Perez case is like you said, it probably was nothing more than a drunken rant. And, uh, that to me is very troubling. I think that's what troubled Justice Sotomayor. And even, I think even more importantly is we've got to have a, a better sense of identifying really the contours of this doctrine because, it could lead to situations where people are thrown in jail for a long period of time for something that really wasn't a true threat. Yeah, so this is what Justice Sonia Sotomayor um, wrote. Uh, in, uh, so she said she agreed. So this case, this Pres v. Florida case, petitioned for cert, which means they petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case, uh, and it was denied, correct? Yes, it was denied. But she wrote a concurring opinion emphasizing the need for the Supreme Court to clarify its true threat jurisprudence. And in it, she said, Robert Perez is serving more than 15 years in a Florida prison for what may have been nothing more than a drunken joke. 
Uh, she wrote that in her opening sentence. She she noted that the jury was instructed to convict Perez based on the words he spoke rather than his intent. In an appropriate case, she said the court should affirm the First Amendment does not permit such a shortcut. She concluded uh, the court should also decide precisely what level of intent suffices under the First Amendment, a question we avoided two terms ago in Alanis. So if you if you want to unpack for that, that statement for me, but then also let's talk about Alanis because the court here uh, what was that in 2015 and Elon for United States had an opportunity to clarify the true threats doctrine and punt it. Absolutely. They punted Nico and the punt was like 15 yards. <laughs> it was a, the Alanis case was a perfect opportunity to clarify this doctrine and they really failed. Now they didn't fail to the extent that they recognized that Alanis was essentially convicted under a negligence type standard. And what they didn't do, however, is explain, okay, what exactly does have to be the mental state of the speaker? You know, is, is it be an intentional or knowing? Is recklessness enough or a, a negligence? And the reason why I think the Alanis case is so interesting is it involved a guy who um, I think was actually threatening his girlfriend or ex-wife, uh, made some statements on there. And he claimed that it was his uh, rap persona. He was a rapper. And the reason why I think that's significant is we just had a case, I think it was August 22nd, I just wrote about it, Commonwealth versus Knox, where a rapper who went by the name of, I think his rap persona was Mayhem Mel, he um, had been arrested for on some sort of drug distribution charges. The police had stopped his vehicle and there was drugs in it, and so he got some drug charges. He created a rap video uh, called uh, F the Police, in which he identified specific officers by name. And there were some lyrics in the song about, you know, uh, that, that could be interpreted as like, I'm going to get you, you know. And when you mention the officers by name, essentially what the the, uh, the state high court in Pennsylvania held was that this was enough to, to rise to the level of a true threat. But that's another interesting facet of the true threat doctrine is – how do we interpret the true threat doctrine in the context of music video, and particularly rap music, which tends to get a bad rap? Uh, <laughs> uh, that you know, oftentimes rap music does contain a lot of hyperbolic language, uh, some some violent, misogynistic language, but a lot of times it's just braggadocio and uh, sort of rodomontades as opposed to real. Uh, real threats. Now, here the court said, "Look, this is different because the officers are specifically named, um, and there's some language in there about like knocking off a confidential informant. You know, that's that's not good, right? We don't want people killing officers and killing confidential informants, right? Uh, but to me, that's another interesting facet of how the true threat doctrine is applied when it's applied actually to uh, videos. So, in, in Brandenburg again, we're talking about incitement to imminent lawless action. How does the other allegedly alleged exception to the First Amendment of uh, fighting words. Oh, great subject, here. fighting words. That's actually one of my favorite subjects. Um, it's one of my least favorite because yeah, everyone yeah. says any any sort of speech that they don't like is fighting oh, words. Oh, exactly, yeah. The court created the fighting words doctrine in 1942 in a case called Shaplinsky versus New Hampshire and involved a Jehovah Witness named Walter Shaplinsky, Walter who was in the, on the streets of Rochester, New Hampshire, and allegedly he was denouncing other religions and proclaiming that his faith, of Je the Jehovah Witness faith, was the one true faith. Well, the other people got mad, and actually, according to Shaplinsky's brief, they were messing with him. 
Um, in other words, they were the aggressors and Shaplinsky was the victim. But the way the case unfolded is that a Marshall Boring, a former semi-pro football player, comes up and there's an exchange between Boring and Shaplinsky and allegedly Shaplinsky calls him a GD racketeer and a fascist and you know, calls him some names, and so Bowering arrests him and charges him with some sort of disturbing the peace disorderly conduct statute. And the United States Supreme Court, for the first time, introduces this concept of fighting words, which are, which are defined as words which by their very utterance inflict injury or cause an immediate breach of the peace. And while the United States Supreme Court has issued other decisions that have narrowed the fighting words doctrine, the fighting words doctrine is still alive and well in the lower courts. And I think the difference between the fighting words doctrine and incitement is this. The fighting words doctrine is A, communicates really negative speech to B that would cause B to punch A in the face. Incitement is A, communicates to the world at large encouraging people to cause harm to be. So Nico uh, curses at David and calls David's mothers a bunch of nasty names, and then David punches Nico, right? That, that may well be fighting words, as opposed to David uh, communicates to the world at large, encouraging other people to uh, mess up Nico's house. That would be incitement. And um, a true threat would be, I'm going to punch your mom right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ex- exactly, yeah. So they're, 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 as I say, they're cousins in the First Amendment family, but they're distinct. And, and the fighting words doctrine is also uh, a very hot topic in First Amendment law now because there is a standard in the, in the fighting words doctrine that essentially holds that if the, if the communication is directed to a police officer, that police officers are held to a higher standard and they're supposed to, because of their special training, expected to exercise restraint. Well, the Connecticut Supreme Court actually extended the police officer rationale to a store manager. So in this case called State versus Bacala, the a woman was very upset at a store closing. She rushes to the store and encounters a store manager, and she just unleashes a torrent of profanity and vituperative fulminations at this lady. Um, and uh, later on, she's arrested for disorderly conduct. And what the Connecticut Supreme Court essentially said is that store managers are expected to deal with a lot of invective and abuse because they deal with a lot of angry customers, and so it's not fighting words. And that's a fairly controversial ruling in some quarters, right? And they, it essentially says that any professional who deals with or can be expected to deal with those sort of invectives needs to you know, manage their emotions better than just an average citizen who doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And so the question is, you know, how far do we extend the sort of police officer higher restraint rationale? Do we extend it to store managers to expend it to other non-government officials? You know, and it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, you know. Uh, well, tell me why I'm wrong here, David. So as a free speech advocate, my initial reaction to the the fighting words doctrine is that it's a doctrine that depends almost entirely on the subjective reaction of the listener to a speaker. Uh, and, and the idea that someone's speech could fall outside of First Amendment protection because uh, – uh, because of whatever their emotional state is, won't allow them to to respond to it in a way that doesn't result in violence. 
I, I think strikes me as contrary to to fundamental free speech principles. Um, now, is there an objective standard when you're considering fighting words? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great point. And, I and mean, if and if there is, it it only really bears on the analysis of the listener's reaction. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, in First Amendment law, there's a lot of doctrine that rely on the listener's speech. So. If we talk about like the the seminal standard in K through twelve student speech law, the Tinker case, right? Yeah. What's the standard in Tinker? Uh, reasonably forecasts a substantial disruption. Well, most courts, not all, fortunately, but most courts don't look at the source of the disruption. So, in other words, let's say that you're a student in school and I don't like your speech, and so I'm I create a disruption. You know, your speech is upsetting to me, so. I and others react very poorly to your speech. You may be censored because I have created a disruption. And what's the standard reasonable forecast of substantial disruption? A lot of people say, though, that actually equates to what's called a heckler's veto, right? Because if I don't like your speech, all I have to do is react poorly enough and you get censored. And that stinks, right? In the First Amendment world, we don't want... Uh, speakers' free speech rights to be, be diminished by listeners who don't like it, uh, and there be there have been times in our in, in the court's First Amendment jurisprudence where it recognizes that. I think most notably in Terminello versus City of Chicago in 1949, where Justice William O. Douglas essentially said it's it's a high purpose of the First Amendment to invite dispute and to stir things up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and I think you you hit you hit the nail on the head where you said the fighting words kind of is in tension with that that fundamental First Amendment principle, right? Well, it's it's as though the listeners have no agency and are untethered emotionally, and the speaker can't control how they'll react, and therefore their the scope of what it's permissible for them to say is determined by the listener, listener their their uh, emotional control, their agency, and it, it just seems unfair to me that the speaker bears the burden of. Of dealing with a listener's response or having to forecast what a listener's potential response would be. Yeah, I mean, I think you make an excellent point, and uh, that's uh, that's actually a split in the lower courts. It's actually one of the pressing issues that we have in student speech law. There's a sort of a difference between what the Seventh Circuit holds and what some of the other circuits hold. You know, does it matter who the source of the disruption is? You know, to me, it should matter in the student speech calculus if the speaker is actually intending to create a disruption. Uh, if, the, if the speaker engages in peaceful speech and other people act in a riotous fashion, it's sort of like the, the case that where I, I think that, that brings us to mind is the Dariano case, Dariano versus Morgan Hill Unified School District, where John Dariano and four other students wear to Live Oaks High School uh, T-shirts with the American flag on it. And you think, well, what's the problem with wearing T-shirts with the American flag on? Well, they did it on Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, I remember that. And that case. that upheld that that upset a lot of other students, uh, some Latino students particularly. And so they complained to the principal and said, "Look, there's going to be problems." And the net the net result was that John Dariano's free speech rights were squashed because the court felt that it might cause other students to react violently or poorly. Right. Um, and what uh, Judge O'Scanlan, I think, wrote a, a fiery dissent in that case. He said, look, you're, you're sanctioning the heckler's veto, right? That it should matter that the speaker, in this case Dariano, acted peacefully. He just wore a T-shirt with the, with the American flag in the United States of America. And he can't do that because other people may react poorly. And so that, that's another 
another unsettled issue in First Amendment law. That's that's one of the things why you know I think you and I both love this area. Is there's there's so many areas of debate and contention and controversy and um, you know it's it, the free speech interest doesn't always win, right? Well, I, yeah, I love this area because a lot of free speech or uh, first free speech First Amendment law seems to be settled, and you get you get nine zero decisions from the high court. But there are certain areas where it's it's quite controversial, and that's another reason why I love campaign finance law as well, uh, is because there's a lot of open questions. But continuing on this on this thread of uh, you know l- listeners' understanding of a speaker's intent or a, to put it another way, how a listener responds to a speaker. speaker. You, you quote in the early paragraphs of your ABA Journal article, University of Colorado Law School professor Helen Norton. And she says, speech that places a victim in fear, and we're talking about true threats again here, speech that places a victim in fear for his or her physical safety is deeply harmful and that it disrupts the target's life and may deter him deter him or her from engaging in key life activities. And she goes on to say, uh, indeed, true threats may themselves undermine First Amendment values by silencing the speaker's target. And I want to talk to you about that quickly, um, and maybe not in the context of what the law says, but how we should think about free speech norms. Because I go to speak on college campuses, and I talk to some students who say, when there's a white nationalist speaker on campus, or there's another speaker who deeply upsets me because they strike at my core values. I feel cowed. I feel silenced. And I feel as though I can't speak up in return. And as a result, that violates my free speech rights because it doesn't encourage more speech. It encourages less speech. Now, I wanted to get your thoughts on that sort of argument because we're seeing it percolate more. My initial thoughts are, well, you know, the, f- the First Amendment requires us or sort of demands of us a a degree of resilience, uh, that freedom is hard sometimes and, uh, that we, that we can't be wilting flowers if we want to live in a democracy with people who have different points of view and different perspectives on many different issues. So while it might be true that you feel cowed, you feel silenced because someone is striking at your deepest values, of course, rhetorically, we're not talking about violence here. Um, that's just something that you have to live with in a democracy, and you need, if you want to participate in that democracy, you need to be strong enough to to respond in kind, to bear witness to your own values, your own beliefs, and that's why we have the place to make sure that it's only an exchange of words and not an exchange of blows or stones. So I wanted to get your perspective on that because what uh, Professor Norton is saying here, uh, the implication of which. Uh, goes much deeper than I think she she's she meant. Yeah, I think she was talking about in the context of an actual true threat where if somebody's truly threatening you, you know, like you're cowed and you're scared and you know, a trembling trail of trepidation runs through your body and you don't know what to do, right? Yeah, but concepts me, do creep. Yeah, to the, to me that's a little bit different than um, I don't like a speaker. I don't like the speaker's ideas, so I'm going to claim that these noxious ideas are are causing me to silence. I mean, to me, that's anathema to fundamental First Amendment principles. 
And uh, I, I like exactly what you said. I, I, I point to the counter speech doctrine, which I think is one of the foundational principles that we have in First Amendment law. And that was expressed most articulately by Justice Louis Brandeis back in his concurring opinion in Whitney v. California in 1927, where he said something to the effect of, you know, there'll be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies to avert the evils by the processes of education. The remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. And I I think as a society, we have to, to, to take that as our blueprint for personal liberty. When we are confronted with noxious, offensive, and even repugnant speech, our initial response shouldn't be to censor it, but should be to respond with and to show why that speech is wrong. And so that's why I, I tend to agree with just, just what you said. You know, you said it better than I can say it, that, you know, when we're confronted with, with harmful speech, we, we shouldn't try to silence the speaker. Um, that's actually unsafe, right? It drives them underground, and they may, instead of you know fiery rhetoric, they may respond with violent action. I I think uh, you know now some people respond to that and they say, well, that's overly idealistic, right? That that you're 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 being uh, you're advocating this sort of idealistic vision of society, and it's just not real. Well, well, that's what the students would yeah. tell me if I if I made yeah. that argument to them. They'd say, oh, this is a million vi- million view that uh, truth will win out in the end. But I'm emotionally exhausted for from arguing. F- against these white nationalists and I can't change their mind. And I am so, I'm so convinced of my, my truth that at a certain point, you know, I'm almost willing to resort to force in order to shut these other people up who can't be overcome by reason. Yeah, and see, that's troubling to me. I think in a constitutional democracy, we, we allow everyone to speak and and try to sort it out. You know, democracy's messy. It's not always perfect, right? But it's it's better than everything else. I mean, I forget who said that. But, ben, that was Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> well, what, what, what other response? We want to have a, some autocratic regime where only certain ideas are accepted? I mean, that's just, uh, uh, to me, that's just contrary to uh, what we want to be as a society, you know? Well, David, where do we go from here? So to close the loop on the Alanis v. United States 2015 case, yeah. uh, they uh, they punted on the First Amendment issue and said and explained that the jury instructions in that case amounted to a mere negligence standard violating the cardinal criminal law principle that wrongdoing must be conscious to be a criminal. In the in that case, uh, Anthony Alanis's mental state uh, suggested that he might not have been aware that it, his speech would have been perceived as harmful or or threatening. So they didn't take the next step to 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 determine whether that was. Uh, protected by the First Amendment, so and, and I hope I get that got that correctly. But you did, we, Nico. You would, I think I think that we got this, the court needs to take the next step. But what what Justice Sotomayor urged, they need to answer the question that they ducked in Alanis. We need to know what has to be what what is the mental state of the speaker in a true threat context. We need to know if recklessness is enough. We know negligence is not enough. Is recklessness enough? So they need to answer. The question that they ducked in Alanis. And do you see any cases coming up the pipeline that might uh, do that? Well, this Commonwealth versus Knox is a, a case decided by the uh, Supreme Court of Pennsylvania uh, just August twenty second, I believe. That 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 could be a good one. I mean, they're they're continuing. Oh, you, you described it earlier. Remind our listeners briefly. Uh, it involved a rapper who created a video. Um. A prosecutor say targeting the officers that were going to testify against him in a drug case. Oh yeah, and uh, right. and to me that's a very interesting question because not only does it 
trigger the true threat doctrine, but it also talks about rap music and how in the calculus we determine whether you know the difference between artistic expression and a true threat. But I, I to which go back, sort of implicates the questions you were asking earlier about the uh, the Columbine shooters' um, creative writing. Yeah, exactly. And but I, I think that you hit the nail on the head earlier, where you you mentioned Olanis. They have the Supreme Court needs to answer the question that it ducked in Alanis. Um, and I think that'll bring some much-needed clarity to the law, because right now we don't have it. And so, you know, we're having situations like this Perez case down in Florida. And, I, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at the Perez case. But, you know, that, that opening line in, in sort of my order's opinion sort of caught my eye. You know, like the guy may be in prison for 15 years for what may be no more than a drunken rant. And to me, that's not right in a free society. I mean, you know, you know, we're not supposed to go around engaging in drunken rants, but should you be thrown in jail for 15 years for it? I don't think so. Well, why have you here? Uh, Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh, if he's confirmed, any indication of where they'll come out on these questions? You know, I'd have to reserve judgment on that and study their free speech opinions even more. Gorsuch, though, can can be quite thoughtful in, in on First Amendment issues. At least he was as a federal appellate judge. I I haven't studied Kavanaugh enough to to really know. I I don't want to hazard a guess on that, but um, I'm certainly hopeful that at least in certain areas of First Amendment law, they'll be they'll be sensitive. Yeah. Well. David, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for writing this ABA Journal article. It got me thinking about some of these questions that I haven't thought about in a couple of years. And I really do hope that the court will take up these questions soon so that we can get some clarity and that so when when uh, would-be censors out there go about describing uh, true threats, or we can even talk about fighting words as well as uh, any sort of speech that they disagree with falling within those categories, we can we can return with a very clear standard of what those those uh, categories are and much in the way that we can with uh, the incitement standards. So uh, thanks for doing that and um, hope to have you on the show again. Yeah, I'd love to be back. I really appreciate it. You are an incredibly eloquent defender of the First Amendment. It was an honor to be on your show. Well, I, I don't know that I've ever had a guest on the show with uh, such command of the case law as you. I mean, you, the, the fact that you can that you can recite all these lower court cases and in many cases quote from them uh, oh, thanks, is pretty bro. impressive. So, uh, And we knew that about you. We've been following yeah. you for a while. It's great to finally have you here. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to come back. All right. Thanks, David. Okay, bye-bye. That was First Amendment scholar and FIRE legal fellow David Hudson. You can read his American Bar Association journal article on true threats in the August edition of the journal under the title, When Do Rants Exceed First Amendment Boundaries and Become True Threats? You can also watch his aforementioned explainer videos about seminal First Amendment cases, including Hazelwood v. Kuhlmeyer and West Virginia State Board of Education v. Barnett. You can watch those at youtube.com slash the fire org this podcast is hosted and produced by me nico perino and recorded and edited by my colleague Aaron reese to learn more about so to speak you can follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast you can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org and if you enjoyed this episode please do consider leaving us a review on apple podcasts or wherever else you listen to the show And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.